Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. I, try, I do try to give as, as much practical information to folks as possible to adapt to different circumstances. But one thing you can do that would be far less costly than blowing out the ceiling in your apartment would be to put up artwork that represents deep space. So landscape paintings, photographs, prints, even travel posters showing you know, far-off countries and the beautiful landscapes. Our minds do respond to metaphorical uh, representations of the stimuli we're talking about just as much and as strongly as they do a literal representation of space. So there's all sorts of ways to trigger sense of distance besides the literal physical dimensions of your space. And if you want like a, uh, want to hit a triple, if you get a, um, a vintage travel poster of a far-off country, so I think I show one in my book uh, from Scotland, but you know there are beautiful examples from the 1920s and 30s. I, don't, I can't imagine they're very expensive. In fact, you can order them online as reproductions. So they have these gorgeous posters, and let's say it's Greece, so you're looking out on you know, some beautiful beach or, or, or landscape with water in it. So what's happening is not only are you seeing the landscape, the, the representation of depth of, of dimension, you also have the word Greece up at the top. So just, just thinking with your eyes closed of Greece, if you're standing in North America at least, that triggers that sense of dimension of distance because you sort of measure in your mind, oh, I'm standing here in Greece as I know is 12 hours away or 10 hours away. That triggers the same kind of creative mindset. And even the sense that these were done back in the 1920s, that nostalgic view of time gone past. They've actually done studies with people who are primed, as it's called, with images of the past or evocations of the past. So time as a distance will trigger the same human reaction. So if you've got a vintage travel poster, you're kind of hitting a triple there. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Donald, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hey, Srini. Glad to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I came across your book by way, I believe, of your publicist, uh, My Creative Space. And as somebody who obsesses over the impact that environment has on creativity, um, I just loved everything in this book. I, I was envious of all the various spaces that you had profiled in this book and how beautiful they were. And I thought to myself, yes, like I need to get rich enough to basically have a creative space <laughs> like this. But uh, before we get into all of that, uh, I want to start by asking, what is the very first job that you ever had and what impact did that have on who you've become and what you've done with your life? Wow. Now, is that a full-time or part-time job? You know, both actually. I'd be curious to see what the very first sort of part-time high school job is. That's always interesting to see what the first way that anybody ever made money was. Okay. 
Well, um, let's see. I guess then my first job would be working in the family factory. So my family ran a paint manufacturing business in Long Island City, Queens, uh, just across the East River from New York City. And it was actually founded by my grandfather, who was an immigrant from the Galicia region of Poland. And he came over and uh, became a paint salesman and I guess did well enough that nineteen twenty nine he was able to start this manufacturing company and you know you would have thought, boy, talk about bad timing. The depression was uh you know like a few weeks away, and yet somehow he was i guess so good at what he did that he not only survived the depression he actually thrived in it, which really makes no sense to me i've I've, I've kind of puzzled over this because you know doing paint jobs is probably the easiest thing to cut out when money is tight. He just say, okay, I'll go another year, I'll go another year. And yet somehow he did really well. The business went into the 1960s when or my grandfather ran into the 1960s when my dad took it over. So um, kind of grew up in that milieu anyway. So I don't know, I must have pulled some strings or something. So I got myself a summer job in the factory uh, in Queens and I would go there. And um, I just remember my favorite job was using this cool staple machine. It was about, you know, five feet tall. You press down on your foot and it just automatically shot these heavy duty, um, you know, staples into the bottom of cardboard cartons so that you could seal the bottoms and then the cans would be placed in there for shipping. Um, and I just love the sound and the kind of clanging and the whole, the whole factory atmosphere. And I guess, I, I don't know, I developed a real interest in industrialization and mass production and all of these kind of uh, early industrial revolution or at least 20th century industrial revolutionary concepts, which I kind of explored later in more contemporary terms. Anyway, it was a, it was a summer job, um, you know, for uh, when school was out and uh, actually made a few dollars and um, I was kind of happy. So that's, I guess, my first part-time job. Mm. Um, go ahead. What impact did that have? I mean, paint factory and architect, there seems to be some, you know, it seems like you're one of the few people that where you could draw a line from the first thing you did to what you've actually ended up doing. Yeah, I mean, as I said, it kind of, it, it, you know, some of it you're not aware of at the moment. It would sort of gestate and interest would kind of come out later. But I, I it did become at that time just... It's really taken by this whole world of manufacturing and making things. And also, yeah, the architecture that went with it. I, I mean, I would probably be the only person who would like, you know, travel around and actually look at old factory buildings as, as a source of admiration. Um, I just like their, you know, their proportions, their power, what they represented, how they uh, gave shelter to work. And then the whole concept of assembly line production and so forth. Um, all of these things kind of became, you know, interests in myself later and also just kind of the, the world of business and the economy and, and, you know, how things run in that kind of part of the universe. Mm. I mean, so this sounds, you know, you were pretty much like teenage years or whatever, and you still have this sort of impulse to make things. And I, th I think that to me, that sort of creative impulse that need to make things that need to express ourselves gets drilled out of us bit by bit. In fact, I, you know, I'd, I'd used this metaphor before where if you actually go to the self-education section of a bookstore, you'll look at, you know, grades K through 12 and you'll notice the curriculum gets more and more rigid and less and less creative. And I wonder, as somebody who has maintained that throughout your life, what do you think it is that causes us to lose it and how do you bring it back? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, and, and certainly one that, um, you know, people have commented on for a long time. I think it was even Picasso has said, you know, we're all born artists, and the trick is staying one when you grow up to be an adult. Um, so it kind of captures what you're you're talking about right there. 
you know, it's probably a confluence of factors, but certainly one of them is, I guess we equate, you know, social standing, social success with conformity. It's, it's almost required, and I guess on some level, to have a cohesive society, to have a cohesive culture, people have to kind of fall in line to some degree, have to conform, have to have certain uniform behaviors, uniform expectations, and, and some of that obviously is very good and necessary, but I guess maybe it's kind of a blunt instrument uh, in the sense that it also, as you say, tends to quash the creative urge. Because we, you know, we all know every child, when you look at youngsters under certainly under certain ages, I mean, they're just, they're just creativity machines in a sense. They're, they're impulses to play, to explore, to try stuff out without compunction, without inhibition. And yet, I guess, you know, part of the education process is you go to school and you sit in the desk, you know, at certain times and certain places at certain hours, and you are working with a common curriculum and you are working towards getting the right answer on the test so that you can get a good grade so that you can, you know, graduate high school and go to a good school and then get a job. And then there you continue in that vein uh, because you're there's sort of either explicit or implicit um, you know, pressure to conform because if you do things that are a little bit wacky or out there or don't uh, jibe with the rules of the place, you know, you could be looked down upon, you could be demoted, you could be fired, you could do all these things unless it's an exceptionally, you know, creativity embracing culture. And there certainly are such organizations and businesses that do that. So there is this, you know, continual pressure to not be creative, uh, certainly, you know, outside the boundaries of one's home, which is one of the places where you can go to do that sort of thing. So I guess it's just this, this overriding um, urge towards sameness at the end of the day. Mm. Yeah, and it's so interesting, right? I, I was writing about this this morning, and, it's, you know, we have these sort of three basic needs, which are our comfort, security, and certainty, yet to do anything extraordinary, we have to forego those needs. Uh, if you look at anybody who has done anything, you know, Susan David, who's uh, given an amazing TED Talk, was also a guest here, said discomfort is the price of admission for a meaningful life. And so it's this sort of paradox that you want these things so badly, yet you have to be willing to sacrifice them in order to get what you want. And the funny thing is that conformity is not what leads to people making big change. And yet we have a system that breeds compliance. So how do you how do you undo this narrative as an adult if it's been so deeply uh, embedded into you. Well, clearly, it's, it's first step is, is self realization and to understand exactly what you're describing and make some kind of conscious effort to find a path for yourself um, to realize what it is that you feel like you need to bring forth into the world. I mean, it's certainly doable on an individual level. The question is, as soon as you bump up against the environment and getting the approval of others, whether it's, you know, venture funding or uh, acceptance into the market or anything else, that's where you're really fighting the uphill, the uphill battle. How do you convince others? But I guess, it, you know, it gets down to perseverance, um, certainly on an individual level. And, you know, all the, all the stuff we hear about all the time, which is you've got to be willing to fail and fall down and brush yourself off and get back up again. And I guess on the you know broader end, I suppose it's to become kind of an activist for changing our culture. Um, certainly in the educational sphere, there's a lot of people who are trying to do different things um, with the uh, you know system of education. In fact, my son, who's a 15 year old, is in something called Innovation Lab uh, in his high school, and that's a school within a school, so they can do things a little differently. They can be more project based rather than you know grade driven and so forth or test driven. 
So yeah, get involved with those kind of movements, uh, whatever kind of dimension is out there and that you feel is important. And I think we can affect change, but it it takes uh, it takes time. It takes effort. Yeah. These sort of things are not going to happen overnight. Hmm. So how in the world did you, um, I mean, obviously as an architect, you probably think quite a bit about space in a way that most of us probably don't, but you then tied it to creativity. So where in the world did that come from? Like what led to this of all things? Yeah, it certainly wasn't uh, what I planned and set out for when I kind of started my studies, but um, I guess there was a pivotal moment. I had been in practice for, I don't know, maybe 15 years or so. And I, I had been very fortunate in my practice um, in the sense that I kind of fell into a certain practice area that afforded me uh, considerable budgets on my projects. And um, I could essentially take, you know, a blank piece of paper and obviously with the input of the client's uh, needs and visions and goals could translate that into built structures that were beautifully uh, handcrafted in many cases, beautifully put together, and that could be each one could be unique. Uh, this is all custom design. So I'm marching along, and then along the way, I guess I, I came into contact and, and got hired by a group of uh, they were like resort developers, I guess you can call them, but they were very, uh, I was almost boutique scale. They would take very historic properties, properties with unusual natural um, characteristics, natural terrain. And do some interesting things with them. And one of the projects that I got was to design the prototype for a four-bedroom cottage that was to go on the grounds of an historic spa resort hotel. And they would function as like hotel rooms only outside the main building. And there were to be 30 of them. They were all to be identical. This was part of a local tradition where they used to build identical um, little cottages all in a row, very tightly spaced um, for people to come to. So, okay, so, you know, this is development, and that means time is money in a way that certainly for private custom designs is less, less so the pressure. Um, there was a decision made, and it kind of made sense, given that there was 30 identical uh, cottages to be built, that they would be constructed using modular means. So there's kind of two types of building out there. One we call stick building. That's where, you know, you truck everything to the side and you put everything together, and voila, you have a building, but it's kind of piece by piece, whereas modular building, they're... They're constructing, if you can visualize, like shoeboxes, these kind of long wood uh, rectangular volumes in a factory, right? They're building the walls and the floors and the ceiling. They're running wires and plumbing in there. They're finishing to some degree on the inside. And then they put these boxes on big trucks. You might have seen them on the highway. And they move them over to the actual site where they've built some foundations. They lower them down on a crane. They bolt them together. They finish them off on the outside. They put a roof on. You wouldn't know. That these buildings were constructed in a factory as opposed to on site. And basically, this whole this, this process, this, this whole idea of, oh, that's not the same as starting with, you know, a blank piece of paper and just kind of putting things together piece by piece. This is almost like Legos, you know, where you have a almost a given unit of construction of design. And I have to kind of work with that process from the beginning. And it just got me, you know, it's the classic rabbit hole. It just opened up this whole question. Well, what is creativity and how does it, you know, get applied in architecture? So it's not just one way of building. There's more than one way of building. And really, it's not just about architecture. We have modular products, modular uh, housewares and toys and even jewelry and, and clothing. All these things can be modular in the sense that they're uh, co-creative. That is, there's some designer somewhere, some inventor creates these modules, and then he gives them to you and says, here, you you know, go have fun with them. And generally speaking, it's an open-ended process. You can make almost anything with Legos, Legos right? It's an open-ended game. And so as I'm kind of just diving into all the literature and reading, you know, anything I can get my hands on, I guess because of my inherent nature in this question of uh, creativity in 
build space in architecture, I kept coming stumbling really on this research that kept um, kind of uh, uncovering, revealing connections between the environment and how people think, feel, and act, and very often in ways that we're totally unaware of. And that just started to fascinate me uh, because a lot of these cues actually have to do with the creative process. That is, they've found a number of what I call design triggers, triggers in our surroundings, both built and natural, which can actually lead us to be more creative, to have greater idea flow than in spaces or places without them. And that's where everything took off. Mm. Interesting. Well, let's get into the, the tactical components of this. I mean, I think that was one of the things that I loved was that you provided so much practical application. And like I said, every time I looked at these creative spaces, I was just filled with envy. Some of them were so beautiful. Like I said, these just huge glass rooms with like floor to ceiling glass windows. I was like, I wish that was my writing office. Like I wish that was my podcast studio. Um, but l- first, l- let's start with this idea about designating creative space. Like I think that somebody who, who does creative work on a regular basis, I know this, like, you know, if you have a space where you do your work every day, eventually your environment and your behavior get linked. But I'm curious, like, what is your research showing about this? Well, first of all, I think it is important that folks establish a consistent place in which they do their creative work, whatever form that takes, wherever it, it happens to land. Because what's going to happen is, is what's called classical conditioning, right? And the, the great example of that is Pavlov's dogs, right? So Pavlov, a scientist, he feeds his dogs uh, every day at a certain time, and at the same time that he's plopping that food into their bowls, he's ringing a bell. So he rings the bell, he gets, they get fed, he rings the bell, they get fed. And this goes on for days and days until the point where he can just ring that bell and the dogs come running and they're already salivating. They don't even have the food in front of them. So you're conditioned through habitual, repeated behavior to enter into a physical and mental state of being. So if you can create this or establish this creative space that you come to every day, just by entering that space, your mind already moves into a creative mindset to begin with. So that's a real positive there. Uh, and of course, it, it also comes in handy because all of us at some point, I'm sure, have experienced creative blocks. So one of the great ways to kind of undo a creative block is to actually step away from your typical designated creative space and go somewhere else. It could be to the coffee shop. It could be the library. It could be across the country to a whole number, another place. It's a way to kind of unlock but it's something that's gotten fixed in your mind by changing place. Mm-hmm. Why does travel in particular do that? I, I know this because I just came back from India. Uh, you know, I was at a surf camp there, and I remember my content strategist, he was looking at the writing that I'd done. He said, this is some of the best work you've done in a long time. And I, I was just, why travel in particular? Like, What is it about that that causes such a drastic change in somebody's creative uh, output? Well, I think it's because, you know, with a routinization of place uh, does come uh, the threat of falling into the familiar, of kind of doing the same thing again and again. And when we relocate to another place, especially a place that's far away, that uh, has a wholly or largely different culture, a largely different way of looking at the world or living or dressing or eating or any of these things, we, we leave our comfort zone. And when we leave our comfort zone, Creativity tends to come forth because, you know, that's part of the idea of creativity, which is getting out of the tried and true, getting out of the familiar, getting out of the safe zone, and putting yourself into a, a wholly different place to be able to look through a different lens, to look through a different perspective. And travel absolutely does that, uh, certainly while you're there. And of course, as a set of accumulated experience that you can then bring back with you. To your regular place of habitation and use that in your work. So you're growing your, your knowledge base, your mental wherewithal. And if creativity is combining things or is largely 
about combining disparate things together. The more things that are floating around in your consciousness and unconsciousness, the more you have to draw from when it comes time to combine them. Mm, wow. So the other thing you talk about is uh, the color blue ceilings, um, taking into view and displaying art in terms of environment. Let's talk about color in particular. I think that that to me was one of those things that was really fascinating. I never, I mean, I kind of had an idea that color could change perception and, and change behavior. So talk to me about what we know about color and, and the impact that it has on our actions, our thought process and our behavior. So there are actually two colors that I um, reference in, in the book. One is the one you just mentioned, blue. The other is green. But we can talk about blue because you actually um, mentioned a few other tactics that kind of go hand in hand with them. And these are a series of tactics, what I call techniques, um, which have to do with our perception of space. So my basic thesis uh, in, in this part of the book is that the more... Uh, open our sense of physical space, the more open-minded, more open to new ideas, new experiences, the more, uh, the larger our idea space in our brains becomes. So if we have a sense of significant space around us, then that leads us into a creative mode. Whereas if we sense uh, a sense of compression that we're kind of hunkered down, like if you walked into a old-fashioned, at least phone booths, these tiny constricted space, then we tend to move into an analytical framework, an analytical outlook, because we're much more focused and, and narrowly uh, thinking about things in a much more narrow and concrete and detailed sense. So blue, if you I don't know if folks have ever been in color theory class or read about this, so blue is a cool color and has to do with wavelengths and how it hits the eye and is processed in the brain. But if you have a plane that is colored blue, it will have the optical appearance illusion of moving away from you of receding away from you whereas say that same plane that were rendered in red a very warm color uh that surface would actually have the create the delusion the illusion of moving towards you so spaces that are say wholly blue in their surroundings feel like they are moving outward whereas spaces that are red or warm colors feel like they're converging on you and they've even done an experiment there was an interesting study at the um New York City Piers in 2006 at the Architectural Digest Show, which is kind of a trade expo for interior design and furnishings and so forth. So this architect set up some event tents, um, and one of them was colored just all blue light, and the other one was colored in all red-white, and people would come in and they were serving drinks and nibbles, so you know you would entice people in there to be, to be your guinea pigs. They were even wearing hazmat suits, white hazmat suits, so they were trying to erase any color that wasn't either the red or the blue. Anyway, so what they did was to observe how people behaved, I assume surreptitiously, and it's very interesting. In the blue room, the blue tent, people tended to move outwards to the perimeter walls, and they did so generally in sort of ones and twos, whereas in the red room, the red space, people converged towards the middle, and they were in greater number, and they were all kind of talking to each other. So you can kind of see how color impacting not only the mindset but our behavior because in the blue room people are what they're exploring boundaries they're going outwards into the quote-unquote unknown whereas in the red room they're sort of huddling in the middle almost for safety as if the room were pressing them inward so we can see how color is really just uh you know affecting behavior and mindset as well And i think you talked about ceilings and views these are both techniques for literally and more concrete sense expanding your sense of space. What they've found through the research is that ceilings of 10 feet and higher, uh, subjects who are uh, put through a series of creativity assessment tests will actually outperform on those tests than people in that identical room, but with a ceiling down at eight foot. 
So you can, wow. you know, it's just like literal representation of our sense of openness. And it makes kind of perfect sense in just how we equate openness, that term, which, by the way, is one of right. what, the, the big five personality characteristics. Your openness to experience is considered the one that's sort of closest to measuring your inherent creativity as an individual. All of this kind of points to the same phenomenon. Hmm. So, I mean, obviously people can't, you know, go knocking down the ceilings in their houses. Uh, but you're saying basically if we were to paint rooms blue, we could make a room feel bigger than it is. Yes. Inherently speaking, I mean, all things being equal, but yes, you're right. It's hard to say, oh, well, well, you know, am I, I live in an apartment. Am I, do I need to buy the apartment above me and blow through the ceiling? No, that's not going to happen. <laughs> clearly. Yeah. Um, you know, that'd be nice. Things- Yes, it would be if you have the bucks, go for it. Um, but yes, of course, when you're when you're dealing with existing spaces, and I try, I do try to give us as much practical information to folks as possible to adapt to different circumstances. But one thing you can do that would be far less costly than blowing out the ceiling in your apartment would be to put up artwork that represents deep space. So landscape paintings, photographs, prints, even travel posters showing you know far off countries and the beautiful landscapes. Our minds do respond to metaphorical uh, representations of the stimuli we're talking about just as much and as strongly as they do a literal representation of space. So there's all sorts of ways to trigger sense of distance besides the literal physical dimensions of your space. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Wow, that's interesting. So, like, I could have pictures of oceans and beaches and mountains, and it would actually give me a sense of space. That's I'd never, I never realized that. Yeah, and if you want, like, a uh, want to hit a triple, if you get a um, a vintage travel poster of a far off country. So, I think I show one in my book uh, from Scotland. But you know, there are beautiful examples from the 1920s and 30s. I, don't, I can't imagine they're very expensive. In fact, you can order them online as reproductions. So, they have these gorgeous posters. And let's say it's Greece, so you're looking out on, you know, some beautiful beach or, or, or landscape with water in it. So what's happening is not only are you seeing the landscape, the, the representation of depth of, of dimension, you also have the word Greece up at the top. So just, just thinking even with your eyes closed of Greece, if you're standing in North America at least, that triggers that sense of dimension of distance because you sort of measure in your mind, oh, I'm standing here in Greece as I know is 12 hours away or 10 hours away. That triggers the same kind of creative mindset. And even the sense that these were done back in the 1920s, that nostalgic view of time gone past. They've actually done studies with people who are primed, as it's called, with images of the past or evocations of the past. So time as a distance will trigger the same human reaction. So if you've got a vintage travel poster, you're kind of hitting a triple there. Mm, wow. Okay. I may have to, to go and, and order one of those. <laughs> All right, let's talk about um, you know spaces. So we, we've talked about this from a color standpoint. We've talked about it from ceiling standpoint. But then you have this entire section on on what you call space, time, and, and creativity, um, where you talk about putting walls to work. We've done that, but I, I think this is you know it's funny because I've read this in other books before about the role that shape plays in a lot of things. You talk about you know facing your space um, and gathering in a circle. Uh, talk about talk to me about that like why does that make a difference because I, I remember reading somewhere and i think it was in uh ingrid fettel's uh lee's book joyful that a circular table actually is a much better thing to have um at dinner than uh, a rectangle one even though typically like for a coffee table you find rectangular ones right yes i actually i i picked up ingrid's book after i heard her on your uh, podcast that was a wonderful uh, that was a wonderful read and yes, and so a lot of the things that she talks about are, are covered in mine from a somewhat different angle, of course. Um, so yeah, gathering in a circle, I call this particular technique. So, you know, just to kind of start off, imagine, uh, I'm sure folks have seen pictures of or walked into the typical meeting room, conference room, sometimes idea room in, a, in an organizational uh, setting, in a workplace. What's the, what's the shape of that table? Very likely, not always, but certainly, you know, overwhelmingly going to be, it's going to be a long rectangle. So there's problems with that right off the bat vis-a-vis -vis creativity and certainly collaborative creativity because there's a power seat, right? It's the person sitting down at the end 
who is that person? It's the chief executive or the project leader, or the team leader, somebody with authority. And then there are the people all the way down at the opposite end from that power seat. It's, I don't know, the junior person, the newbie, um, you know, someone who's shy and diffident, uh, someone who is not so close to power and everybody in between. So what happens when, let's say, you're doing a brainstorming session, the ideas start flying and the first one comes out of this, the CEO or the person in the power seat. How, how are people going to take that idea I would say on the whole, they're going to take it very well. They're going to view it very positively. It's just kind of human nature because you're dealing with a political power structure in your organization. And whether deliberately or not, that idea is going to get you know the best possible viewpoint. But if you take that same idea and you have it come out of the mouth of the person way down there in spatial Siberia, the, the junior, the newbie, you know, maybe it'll fly, but the odds are very good that it won't get the same level of judgment and evaluation as the idea that came out of the power seat. And that's just what you don't want in a creative environment. You want ideas to uh, be evaluated on their merits, not on who happened to have them. The other problem with the rectangular table is, is just communication. It's just literal ability to see and hear and talk to people around the table, depending on where you're sitting and where they're, and where they're sitting. So they've even done studies of this in jury rooms where there are typically long rectangular tables. And what they found is it's a very unequal distribution of communication. Just imagine you're down in one corner and you want to talk to the person on the same side as yourself, but they're down at the other corner. What do you do? You have to lean forward. You got to kind of crane your neck. And when you're done, you sort of sit back, you're done. So you're going to talk to them much less and they to you much less than the person right across from you or the person across from you to, to their left or right. And that skews the conversation because you really want this to be a collaborative effort and everybody have their voice and so on and so forth. So the moment you switch to a circular table, even a square table, a concentric table, voila, first of all, your, your power seat is gone. There's no hierarchically privileged positions around that, that kind of a table. Everybody is equidistant from a single point, the center. And you can see each other, you can hear each other. And most importantly, the focus now has gone from being at the end there, the power seat, to the middle of the table. You can visualize it almost as, a, as an idea basket into which all the ideas go and they're given their shrift and they get their due and hopefully the best ideas emerge as a result. So just the way we dispose ourselves relative to each other in space has mm -hmm. a big impact. Um, and, and just to finish off, just as I'm remembering, there's a if you've read um, Ed Catmull's book, Creativity, Inc., uh -huh. um, yeah. uh, this is the head of Pixar, uh, the very first page of the very first chapter, the very first part of the book is a story about a table. It's about a table that Steve Jobs, of course, insisted that his designers spec for a meeting room at Pixar. And guess what? It's a long rectangular table. And Catmull <laughs> weaves this wonderful story about how he tortured himself and his crew for 12 long years because this table was impossible to work with and yeah, yeah, yeah. And finally, I guess Steve Jobs had passed away at this point. I guess he had the nerve to go to the building department, uh, facilities people and say, get this table out of here. I can't work with this anymore. They bring in a square table. And he talks about how, you know, creativity just took off as a result. So there's a real world story about how arrangement tables impact human creativity. Well, it's funny because I'm going to steal, I, I'm giving a keynote talk about attention and the role that environment plays in focus and then, you know, building a more attentive workforce. But I'm going to share that story with, with the people of my Excellent. audience. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, so you, you talk also about this idea of facing your space and putting your walls to work. Now, is there more to putting our walls to work than what we've already talked about in terms of hanging art on them? Uh, yes. What I, what I call working walls, that's certainly one way to do it. Uh, another way is to apply uh, whiteboard paint, chalkboard paint, something that allows you to actually draw on the walls. And, you know, it's a wonderful yeah. thing that when we're kids, especially in school, we're always admonished, you know, don't draw on the walls. That's like graffiti. That's bad. Well, in the case of whiteboard <laughs> walls, 
you're actually encouraged to draw on the walls. And all sorts of great things happen when you turn your walls into idea spaces. Uh, for one thing, of course, mm -hmm. it allows you to capture your ideas. And this is a key thing for any creative. You've got to get those ideas out of your head and into the world in some kind of concrete, durable form as soon as possible. Because if you think you're going to remember them when you get back home or back to your desk, there's a good chance you won't. We tend to th forget to most of our ideas within 10 to 15 seconds of having them. So we can make more room for more ideas and more inputs. Get those things down, whether it's on a notebook or a phone or a wall, that's fine. The other thing you can do is think big because you can draw big, right? So it's almost uh, if you've got an eight-foot-high ceiling, um, you've got eight-foot-high walls and, and drawing boards much bigger than a notebook or a phone or a tablet. So you can really kind of flesh out your thoughts. And then another nice thing about that is that you can invite others into the space, right? You can have somebody standing next to you or three people or four people standing next to you with the whiteboard wall so you, you get everybody involved and not just yourself kind of scribbling in a tight space. And for extra bonus, there's also this idea I talk about, idea collisions, right? So you've got stuff up on the wall and you go away to lunch and somebody walks by and sees what you've been doing and they go, hey, you know, I've been kind of thinking about the same problem. I should get get together with Srini and let's talk about this and maybe put our heads together. So you have this kind of representation out there in the world that others can partake of as well. So that's another nice part about working walls. Yeah. Well, I mean, the cool thing about whiteboard walls is like, I realized you can actually get on Amazon and, and get, you know, whiteboard wallpaper. Like you don't have to go knocking down yep. walls or do anything. And that stuff actually comes off of your walls, right? Like if you want to yes. take it off, you can take it off. Exactly. Adhesive panels you can put up, same with chalkboard. You, they come in small sizes, larger sizes. So yes, painting is one approach, but these uh, adhesive self-stick panels absolutely work just as well. Hmm. So one other component of this, I think that is interesting to me, you know, you talked um, about curved over straight i think you know you've kind of made a case for that with um circles how else does this play out you know i mean i i've seen this in, in terms of furniture like you know i think it was in ingrid's book she talked about the fact that when you have you know square tables or whatever you have sharp corners and people end up hitting them whereas if you have um things that are curvy it, it's just a very different feel so talk to me about that is it different than you know the whole circle idea so, yes, there's definitely a difference of reaction uh, that happens when we come into contact, whether physically or visually, with things that are straight versus curved. So, generally speaking, uh, the way nature has engineered us is to be very wary, to be very uh, um, uh, cognizant of surfaces and edges and things that come to a point or that have any potential for harm, because it's like almost like cutting with a knife, right? When you're cutting something... With a knife, you're very focused on what you're doing so that you don't hurt yourself with that knife. Well, just being in a space or uh, in the presence of furniture that is characterized by straight lines, uh, sharp edges, things that come to a corner or a point, we become very wary of those potential sources of harm. And we actually back off a little bit. We become a little more stressed. We become a little more focused and alert in our thinking, which is characteristic of analytical thinking as opposed to what we typically call creative thinking or ideation, where we're much more relaxed, much more uh, unstressed, much more willing to explore, to encounter, to go places that we don't normally go. So if you're in a space with curved walls, either circular or just rounded in some fashion or in the presence of furniture that's much kind of softer in its contours and its details, you're naturally going to be more inclined to get into a creative mindset than in these other environments. Hmm. Well, let's talk about ambiance because I, I think that you know the work that you did around ambiance was really interesting to me. Let's talk about light 
and temperature for, uh, first. Um, light in particular, I think, is one that's always been of interest to me. I, I know for a fact that you know I had an apartment where there wasn't very good natural light. Somebody, in fact, didn't move into the apartment because she said there wasn't enough natural light. Hmm. And uh, you know, I realize now, I was like, okay, yeah, that might be why I didn't love that place so much. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, the absence of natural light is a detriment to our health. This goes back to some of the things we were talking about in terms of our connection with nature. Uh, all of which kind of comes under a rubric called biophilia. Something called the biophilia hypothesis basically states that you know we have a natural affinity with the natural world, or an inherent affinity with the natural world because of our antecedents in such environments, and that any time we deprive ourselves of those stimuli, we're 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 causing some harm to our natural bodily systems. And light is absolutely in there, just as much as plant life and smells and sounds and all of those things we associate with nature. So when we don't have enough uh, natural light coming into our minds, we become more lethargic, we can become more sleep, sleepy, uh, or experience sleeplessness, and so on and so forth. So, not surprising, as I had pointed out earlier, things that promote health and happiness also tend to promote creativity. So where you have more natural light, you tend to be not only happy and healthy, but more creative as well. Now, the reality is, again, because we spend 90% of our time indoors, a lot of times the light is much more dim, is much dimmer, is much more diffuse, um, less intense. And of course, it's hard to do things sometimes in, in the case of certain tasks without electric lighting. But mm -hmm. you can kind of make things work for you with electric lighting if you use what I call smart lighting, which are bulbs that either can change temperature or you're able to pick your bulbs or select your bulbs based on their color temperature. So just in case folks aren't aware of it, your bulbs can come in generally in three or four different color temperatures from ranging from very cool, almost blue light up to these kind of very warm tones, more amber tones. And mm -hmm. ideally, in the world, your electric light would harmonize, synchronize with the natural light. So, of course, we know when the sun rises, it starts off kind of warm. It becomes cooler and bluer until like noon and a little bit afternoon. As it starts to set, it starts to go out of the blue and into the warm. Ideally, your electric light would be doing exactly the same thing. And at least fortunately in these days, we now have light LED lighting that can change colors. They have it in commercial spaces now. Uh, in terms of some presets that get the lights changing color as the day goes through. And you can, to some degree, do it at home, too, with certain products that are designed for home environments. So light mm. is absolutely critical. Now, one curious finding, though, that a little bit rubs against all that, they actually measured the intensity of lighting, right? How bright or not bright lighting would be for an ideal creative space. And what they found was a number that's quite shockingly low, which is 150 lux. But just to give folks, that's a unit of measurement. Just to give folks a point of reference, 300 lux is considered minimum for reading. Uh, office is generally going to be in around the 500 range. If you go into your supermarket, you're probably talking about 1,000. You know, it wants to be a little brighter so you can kind of see all the labels and the food. Step outside and we're in a totally different order of magnitude. On a cloudy day, you're looking at 10,000 lux. And on a sunny day, 100,000 lux. So what's up? with 150 lux. I mean, it's, 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 it's almost like you had your eyes closed, which I think actually is the reason for the data, which is that if you want your mind to kind of wander, if you want your mind to kind of go off into, into places that it might otherwise do, you actually want to decrease the amount of visual information coming into your eyes. You don't want to have bright lights because you tend to see more detail. You tend to focus on things. You tend to be more aware, certainly, of your enclosing space, your enclosing walls, with brightly lit environments, and that goes against you know this whole idea of being more open and so forth. So interesting range of um, issues involving lighting, but yeah, it gets back to the core. If you can get good natural light, and you're in a, you're in a good spot. Amazing.
Um, well, let's talk about sound. This is one thing, you know, particularly as somebody who hosts a podcast, somebody who has had a deep love for music. Uh, you know, I mean, I know from having done some of my own research that music can have an impact on creativity and, you know, can really kind of help us get in the zone. But um, what, what impact have you found, you know, from your perspective, like looking at it from the standpoint of designing a space, like how can we use sound to our advantage? So there's a couple of different types of sound. I guess we can talk about one I would perhaps characterize rather as noise and the other one as music, almost kind of opposites there. Vis-a-vis uh, -vis mm -hmm. the noise, this is another one of these sort of counterintuitive findings. So if you, you know, ask somebody on the street, you know, so what do you think is the ideal creative environment in terms of sound, in terms of noise, let's even say sound levels? Most people, I think, intuitively will say, oh, well, quiet, right? I mean, that's, isn't that the best? Well, not according to the data. What they found through laboratory experiments is that people tend to come up with more and better ideas when they're uh, in an environment with about 70 decibels of white noise. So two key things there. One is the sound level, and one is the fact that we're talking about white noise. Uh, so you talk, you imagine um, uh, chatter in a coffee shop, right? Kind of the background chatter in your coffee shop on a reasonably moder uh, moderately busy day. That's the kind of 70 decibel white noise that really, uh, you know, brings you, kind of finds you in the sweet spot, I guess, as far as ideation goes, which maybe explains why, you know, everybody's sitting around there with laptops, a lot of creative types typically go to such spaces, but ocean waves, uh, crickets, uh, leaves rustling in the wind, these are all kind of natural sounds. And why is this? Well, the speculation is that it's taking just enough off edge off of your focused attention to kind of move you out of that analytical mindset and a little bit more into the ideative, generative mindset where you want to be slightly distracted so you don't become too self-aware of being self-aware because ideas tend to flow more readily as a result. Now, music, of course, just the opposite of white noise. Yeah, definitely. And two sub-aspects of that, there is listening to music and, you know, a fair bit of data on that. It does tend to pump up our creative abilities provided that, A, it's music you like, is music that's familiar because you don't really want to start listening to something totally new because you, your mind might go over to that music and start investing too much energy and kind of thinking about it and evaluating it. So it should be something that you've probably heard before on multiple mm -hmm. occasions. And ideally, according to the data, at least it would be instrumental. So you don't have to deal with the words, although I suppose if it's that familiar to you, sometimes the words will recede into the background as well. And then the other aspect of music is not just listening, but actually playing it. Of course, there are classic examples in both fiction and real world. Uh, Einstein is the great example of someone who used music to break mental log jams all the time. He would pick up his violin and start playing. And this is absolutely you know, testified by firsthand accounts that he would play and kind of ponder and play and so forth. And very often got that eureka moment, that insight and he would put down his violin, go back to his work. And in popular fiction, you have Sherlock Holmes as the other uh, great violinist who uses music as a kind of problem-solving tool. But uh, it works in real life as well. Yeah. Um, I think the final one that yeah, I'd be really curious about is, is scent. Uh, I thought that was just fascinating that, you know, scent could have, have such an impact. I mean, I've talked to some people about this and, you know, it's funny, you're Indian, like you burn incense in the house. And I personally hate the smell of incense. I always have. But I think that's for me, it reminds me of, of pujas, which are incredibly long, you know, something that I just don't remember, you know, being fond of. It's like, oh, man, this is going to take like two hours. And so I think in my mind, I connect those two things. Uh, but what impact does scent have and how could we leverage it? 
Yeah, so scent is interesting. It's, it's kind of, I think it's one of those senses we tend to overlook in terms of the kind of psychology of the environment. Um, but it can be quite powerful. I mean, they did one experiment in the Netherlands, I think, where they had people kind of, um, you know, doing going through some sort of exercises at a, at a workspace. And underneath, they hid some uh, cleaning fluid uh, uh, liquid or something, you know, something you might wipe down your counters or something. But So it had an orange, I guess, scent to it. But people didn't know it was down there. So they did one group with the scent present and they gave them exercises. And at the end they gave them a little reward. It was like a crumbly type of cookie, I guess. I don't know, oatmeal raisin, something that, you know, when you eat it, it tends to make little crumbs. So the people who got the cookie, when they were done with their test, they get their cookie, they eat it, and they, the crumbs fall on the work surface. And the large majority of them would then sweep the crumbs off and kind of clean up the desk before leaving. Then they had a second group did exactly the same thing. The exercises in exactly the same place in the same workspace but without any of the scent. And generally, those people left the crumbs on their table. So here's something purely invisible, purely in terms of environment, in terms of ambience, affecting our behavior, creating a change in outcome. As far as creativity goes, I believe there's one um, experiment I reference in the book where they had people um, put uh, cinnamon vanilla sticks. Uh, You know, this is one way to put scents into the air. Um, You put them in a little bottle and they put them by their bed uh, at night. So they went to sleep. And uh, what they uh, evaluated was their creative output in the morning. So there would be a group that had been exposed to the cinnamon vanilla through the night when they got up and eventually got to this workspace and did these creative uh, assessment tests. They outperformed another group, which did the exact same thing, except without the scent. So there, I don't know why particular scents um, trigger that kind of reaction as far as creativity goes. But at least, you know, we do have these results. And, you know, this scent can affect all sorts of emotions and all sorts of behaviors from sleep to um, general, uh, you know, state of mood and uh, state of mind and mood as well as uh, creativity. But, yeah, it's one that uh, I think doesn't get as much attention as it should. Wow. Um, Well, this has been amazing. Like, it's been super eye-opening. And I I love – the funny thing is, for me, I have so many things here that I can go and implement immediately uh, at whatever place I move to next, which I love because I wanted to make sure that I absolutely move to a place where everything is a deliberate choice. Mm. Uh, So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews. And that is, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Uh, yes. Well, you know, as someone who's listened to your uh, podcast for some time now, I've kind of, uh, I guess I was expecting that question to come along, but it's interesting because I was thinking about it um, before the show. Um, so before I answered, I guess it's just a, some of the things that popped into my mind about that question is you, I, I noticed, I guess, when you ask and, and you did it right here, you use the phrase something or someone uh, what makes something or someone unmistakable. And I noticed when a lot of people answer it, they tend to frame it in terms of the someone, but less often provide a response that would also address something. That the answer generally has to do with human qualities rather than necessarily qualities that would apply to an object. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, and I guess you could say, well, because of the word or, you get your choice. But I don't know, something about how you ask the question always makes me think, well, should this answer apply to both or just one or the other? So the other thought mm-hmm. I had was that I don't know. When you ask a what question, I always feel like, oh, are they the folks looking for the right answer, a certain correct answer, or looking for an answer? Obviously, you've gotten many different answers uh, over the years. Um, so I kind of wondered about that. And then, of course, there's unmistakable. It's, how do you define that as something very distinct, something highly evident? Um, 
and I sort of said, well, if I'm going to answer, ask the, answer that question, I want to kind of avoid a circular loop where the, the answer is the definition, but there, that, that wasn't really the question. <laughs> so after all that buildup, I don't know, maybe my answer is going to be kind of anticlimactic, but I'd say one contributing factor of being unmistakable is the degree to which this thing or person reveals some kind of important truth that someone has not yet realized and in a way that makes them, I don't know, different after uh, being exposed to that truth. Uh, I don't know. I just think about things like books um, that when I read them, I come away as a different person. And that book to me is a kind of unmistakable thing in the sense that it's created this experience. It's very memorable and um, that I can then identify afterwards, go back and identify this as the source of that realization. I don't know. That's that, I guess that's my answer for today. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I, I love that answer. Um, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. I am sure they're going to get a very lot of practical takeaways from this. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything else that you're up to? Well, everything about me is on my website, donaldratner.com. And of course, the book itself is available online at all the usual outlets, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Books Million, Indie Bound, and I hope in your library and local bookstore as well. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. 
slash four keys and download your free copy.